0: This week on The Sport Blokes. This week, we look back at an eventful third test in the ashes as England strike back. I still bloody hate the AFL. <laughs> and don't unpack your bags, Paddy Mills.
1: Yeah, definitely not.
0: I've even got some
1: interesting Rubik's Cube and Hobby Horse Championships too. Let's go. it's 8.07 on the 14th of July. Oh, it's a Friday too. I normally say the day first. We plan to be together, but uh, you're a bit under the weather, mate. So we're recording over Zoom. This evening. So you're a trooper. Yep. Thanks for joining me don't call, regardless.
0: Don't call me Sean because I'm not a well man. That's for <laughs> sure.
1: Do you know his dad was my deputy principal in Adelaide?
0: I do now. Fair income, yeah. I feel I feel like you told me that somewhere down the track and I've just forgotten it.
1: Yeah, there you go. Very there good uh, centre half back for the SNM bombers back in the day. The, the uh, Sean, okay. not his dad. I can't remember what his dad's <laughs> name was. Mister. Anyway, a bit of a normal episode this week. Now, I know we've been teasing our draft episodes for a while now. We will hold off on them for a little bit longer. We want to be together in person when we do that. We do have nearly an hour of audio from four different interviewees over the last few months, well, dating back to November with both Estes, the majority of which hasn't been released yet. So we do have a lot of new audio to talk about previous draftees, the most recent draftees, and some future prospects too. So look out for those ones.
0: Yeah, mate, you're right. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of hours of editing, mostly for you, unfortunately, or pretty much all for you. It, it will come out soon enough, though. Plenty of good anyway, stuff there, yeah. Th- there is. There's a lot of good stuff. So, what are we calling it today? Opening kickoff?
1: Well, that's that seems like an apt title for this segment, Stewie, because I will kick off by, I guess... I we we've obviously did those two episodes back to back and and I have a couple of things to litter throughout the episode I guess some clarifications or correcting errors so we talked about Australia's thirty one nil that was actually against American Samoa for the record so yes yeah incredible effort there a couple of really quick hits for me before I throw to you I'm guessing to talk some Wimbledon. Alexander Volkanovsky defended his featherweight UFC title beating Yair Rodriguez. I think that's how you say his name. You can clearly tell that I don't know much about UFC, but well done to him. 21-year-old Max Park broke the Rubik's Cube world record by solving the puzzle within 3.13 seconds, <laughs> breaking, <Nerd>. his <laughs> breaking his own record of 3.63 seconds. Now that's the good, the bad, In the Atlanta 10K, Senebrae Tafiri, and apologies if I have mispronounced her name, she was on track to win her second year in a row when disaster struck for her because she took a wrong turn following a motorcycle that was not a lead motorcycle showing the course, but was actually like a police cycle just going off course. And so rather than just running straight ahead and she would have won, unfortunately she didn't. So that wasn't a very good, uh, yeah.
0: That's disastrous. I mean, I know we've had, Similar sort of stories where people have just kind of got lost along the way, but you can kind of understand how that would have happened if you're just in that zone, following a motorbike in front of you. Yeah, I I can see how that would happen.
1: Well, that's right. If you're used to following the lead car or a motorbike, then yeah, you can see how it happened. So that's that's a bit sad. We go from some sad news to some good news for Phil Rivers and his wife, Tiffany. They're expecting their 10th child, one more, and they've got enough for a full side of the ball for a game of gridiron
0: gee whiz that is uh whew. all right well you know what they're doing in their downtime that's for sure <laughs> get a tv
1: well i think uh i think he's quite religious so uh you know the uh be fruitful and multiply or whatever that phrase is i'm clearly not very yeah, right. religious now obviously we'll talk some more ashes again this evening there's plenty of stuff to get our teeth into just as there was
0: last week but did you see the canberra raiders try celebration versus the dragons i did not surprisingly it pissed off quite a few of the palms but uh Look, it is what it is. The funniest
1: thing, though, it was Elliot Whitehead, himself a Yorkshireman by birth. So himself a pop. Yeah,
0: that's. I think that's actually what, certainly Piers Morgan, I know he was pissed off mostly oh, about Piers the fact that- Piers Morgan. Oh, I mean, he's a tosser, but still, I understand where he's coming from. It's a, the ultimate betrayal in having a Yorkie doing that. Oh, good stuff.
1: Well, it's good that at least some of them have a sense of humor. And
0: then finally, we go to Finland
1: for the Hobby Horse Championships. Now, I've just sent you a link here, Stewie, so you can have a bit of a watch.
0: I've seen this. Yeah, it is utterly ridiculous.
1: Oh, isn't it just like there's Quidditch and then there's the Hobby Horse Championships? Do you know the thing is, though, like, so on that video I sent you, there's one girl, she's just going through the motions. Like, if you're doing something as ridiculous as Hobby Horse, you've got to, the skippity hoppities have to be, you've got to be committed to the trots, don't you? You really gotta be committed. What,
0: I'll tell you what, there was one girl who looked like she was going through the motions, and then all of a sudden she put on the David Campisi goose step and off she went.
1: Oh, is that what it was? Maybe I didn't watch the clip long enough.
0: Oh, there's a there's a cheeky little bit of uh <laughs> bit of show jumping in there as well.
1: Oh, it's pretty wow. funny. Yeah, it's classic stuff, the hobby horse championships. So do yourself yeah, a amazing. favor. <laughs> Check that out. What have you got, Shui?
0: Look, before I get into the Wimbledon, which you were very much right, that is what I want to talk about today. I actually wanted to also mention something about the the thirty six nothing game that I was talking about. You sort of mentioned the thirty one nothing with Australia and American Samoa. The thirty six nothing game, Arbroath FC and Bon Accord thirty six nothing. An eighteen year old John Petrie scoring thirteen. So yeah, <laughs> big nice, big day for him. Indeed. Now, Wimbledon, I don't know, have you had a chance to see any of it at all? I know you're not a massive tennis fan, but Wimbledon yeah, look, is big.
1: Normally, I'll watch a little bit here and there. I watch Often, I'll watch the finals, but because so much is going on in the cricket world with the Ashes and the men's and women's Ashes, and I've watched a, a little bit of the women's as well, so I've just neglected Wimbledon completely, I'll be honest with you. I've seen there's been some upsets and this, that, and the other, but no, I haven't. This is probably the least I've followed Wimbledon in a really long time.
0: No, that's fair enough. I mean, as we always say, there's only so many hours in the day and there's only so much sport you can watch, as much as we wish it wasn't the case. It's true. So, Look, the men's side of things has been fairly straightforward. I mean, you've got Djokovic playing Sinner in one semi final tonight, Alcaraz playing Medvedev in the other. So the one, two, three, and eight seeds. So, yeah, fairly, uh, fairly straightforward sort of tournament for the men. And unfortunately, it kind of looks inevitable that Djokovic is going to win again. But I actually wanted to chat about something from the women's side of the draw. Now, as per usual, the women's side has been all over the place. You look at the final, there's an unseeded lady in there, which seems to happen so often in the women's. We also saw number one seed, Ega Swiatek, get bundled out by Alina Spitalina of the Ukraine in the quarterfinals. Spitalina actually became a mother in October. Her husband, Gail Monfils, you knew they were married, yeah?
1: I didn't actually, or if I did, I'd forgotten. That's some decent stocks, though, isn't it? That's like Alyssa Healy and Mitch Stark being together.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. You'd kind of assume that... I don't actually know if it was a boy or a girl, but you'd have to assume that they'll be kind of pushed into tennis. Interestingly enough, she also dated Reese Topley, the English cricketer, in, I think, 2017 or somewhere around then. So she, uh, yeah, likes the sports people, which makes sense.
1: Does, yep, fair enough.
0: So this was her first Wimbledon since having the kid... Only the second time she'd actually made it past the third round of a Grand Slam, the other being the 2017 Oz Open. But what was so crazy about this was that, aside from the fact that she was pretty much an underdog in almost every game that she played right up until the semifinals, she actually had her lead-up tournament at the Birmingham Open. She got absolutely smashed 6-2-6 love in the first round by someone named Linda, Linda Fruvertova, I believe it's pronounced. She only won 12 points on her seven service games and got absolutely blown off the court. And then she comes into Wimbledon of all places and beats the world number one and the 19 seed Victoria Azarenka. So she had a really, really great tournament. Now, after that match against Azarenka, there was an absolute cascade of booze from the crowd. Azarenka walked off the court without shaking Spidolina's hand. And there is a bit of history there. So if anyone watched the French Open earlier this year, Azarenka actually beat Svitolina in the quarterfinals of that. And after the match, she stood at the, the net basically waiting for a handshake. Svitolina ignored her. Now, obviously... We all know about what's going on in the Ukraine. There's this big issue, obviously, with the Ukraine and the Belarusian and Russian players not shaking hands. And Spitalina, as I said, she ignored her. We fast forward to Wimbledon. Azarenka said, well, I'm not going to wait around for a handshake that's not coming, so I'm just going to wander off. No matter what she does, she's going to get booed, effectively.
1: I remember that one, actually. Um, We might have even talked about it.
0: Yeah, I think we did, actually, because obviously it's such an unusual thing to happen in such a gentlemanly and... Female gentlemanly whatever, What's the female equivalent of gentleman Gentlewoman, I guess
1: Uh, Yeah, very good
0: So after the match is doing her post-match press conference And she sort of said Look, the tournament probably needs to actually address In terms of some, some sort of release In terms of why they're not actually doing the handshake So people don't think that They're just being dicks about it And she actually said As much as I'll shake hands with Azarenka Once the war with Russia is over And it kind of begs the question What difference does that make?
1: It's odd It's very odd, yeah. I guess if there's political pressure back home and they have to be seen to be acting in a certain way at risk of being punished in their own country, but that's, I don't know, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, if you look at it pretty simply, when the war's over, it will have still happened, scores of thousands of people will have died unnecessarily, so nothing's going to change there once the war's over. And also, when the war is over, Azarenka still won't be supporting what happened. She actually went as far in 2022 as going on the record and saying she was, quote, devastated by the actions that have taken place against and in Ukraine, which, look, it's a very obvious thing for most people to say, or certainly for most normal people to say that they're against it. But she's come out and actually said that, look, I live in Belarus. I'm not at all for what is happening over here. So she's pretty much put to bed any sort of idea that she's in support of Putin. To use a tennis term, they're on the same side of the fucking net.
1: Yeah, it's 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 odd. It is odd, isn't it?
0: Yeah, like I I understand like what you said. You know, it makes sense. I understand the premise of what she's trying to say. But as the great Pete Townsend once said, "A friend is a friend. Nothing can change that."
1: Oh, Pete Townsend, very nice. The yeah, who?
0: thought you might like that one. Yeah, very. Yeah, it's just it's a weird one. And the biggest irony of all of it is that Spitalina is actually named after Elena Bystreetskaya. I believe it's pronounced again. Russian names not necessarily a strong suit for me. But she was actually one of the most prominent actresses in the history of Soviet and Russian film and received an order for the merit to the fatherland from none other than Vladimir Putin.
1: Mm. Interesting. So
0: her own name is actually uh, defying her in that regard. Mm. Now, look, the good news is it does actually look like there should, barring a massive upset, be a redemption story for Tunisian Ons She lost to Alina Rybakina of Kazakhstan in last year's final. Do you remember talking about that one? There was that big uproar because Rybakina was born in Moscow. I do,
1: vaguely. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so everyone was sort of saying, oh, well, she shouldn't be allowed to play. Even though she's defected to Kazakhstan, she's still technically Russian. Anyways... Chabur, she's had an incredible run. She's knocked off three consecutive top tens, Petra Kvitova in the round of 16, Rybakina in the quarterfinals, and Arena and Sabalenka in the semifinals. All that stands between her and her first Grand Slam is 42nd-ranked player in the world, Markita Vondrausova. It is looking like it's her time.
1: Mm, yep. Tennis. Tennis. So, Shui, just after his 100th consecutive test, Australia played for the first time in 10 years without Nathan Lyon. Unfortunately, we lost, but it does make the series much more interesting at 2-1. And before we get too far into that, how's this? So I saw that Seven Cricket tweeted the team the last time he didn't play. Have, did you see that one? No, I didn't. Okay, listen to this. A vastly different team. Shane Watson opening with Rogers, Uzi at number three. Phil Hughes at four. Michael Clarke as captain at five. Steve Smith at six. Brad Haddon... Ashton Agar, Sids, Pattinson, and Ryan Harris was the team the last time Nathan Lyon didn't play prior to the third test.
0: Yeah, wow. That is yeah. That is a very, very different side.
1: <laughs> wow, is, that's basically the reaction I had as well. So I guess yeah. let's open this segment with a question. Do you think it's fair to ask, is it the team that's made the fewest mistakes has won each of the first three tests?
0: Yeah, look, there's probably some element of truth to that. I would certainly say as well that I guess maybe the team that didn't quite adapt quick enough as well, um, and certainly in, in the third test, there's a lot of talking going on around about the, the lack of ability to adapt on the fly and some of the, I guess, curious decisions that Pat Cummins made. So yeah, look, probably a fair element of truth to that.
1: So I guess in some ways, the biggest news is the blokes that came in, wasn't it? Mitch Marsh for the Aussies, who had one of the great knocks and hundred in a session. And I watched every ball and it was just magnificent. And you look at the strike rate and you think, oh, yeah, he's just going nuts. But he was leaving. It was actually a very disciplined innings. He was just seeing them like beach balls. And then on the winning team, Mark Wood, my oh my, he was bowling Thunderbolts, wasn't he?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's no secret. I've been going on and on about how Mark Wood should have been in the side right from the start. The guy is the quickest bowler that they've got. He gave us... A bit of trouble last time we played him. And look what happens. He comes in for Jimmy Anderson, who's been utterly rubbish, really. We've got a, we've got a really, you know, yeah, call a space. A yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no. He, yep. He's been rubbish. Yep. And what happens? He rips through the bottom of the Aussie innings and they collapse from four for two forty to all out two sixty-three. I mean, six for twenty-three lost at right at the end, and most of that was wood.
1: Yes, no, he was very damaging with the bat. Very, very damaging. He he played superbly well.
0: He did. And look, you mentioned Mitch Marsh. Obviously, without his 118, the Aussies probably would be lucky to make 200. They batted pretty poorly around him.
1: Well, that's right. He came in at four for 85. So there was all sorts of trouble when he strode to the crease. But he, he turned it around big time.
0: Yeah, and look, obviously, we have to make mention of the fact he was lucky, he was dropped on 12, absolute dolly, should have been taken, it's but true. in cricket, you make your own luck, and he took advantage of it.
1: Absolutely true, yep. And, you know, there were plenty of drops. My God, Johnny Besto, he's dropped nearly as many as he's caught. I think, I think the stat I saw was nine catches and one stumping, and seven drops and one missed
0: stumping. Yeah, look, I mean, it's one of these things where I think you kind of have to bring in folks for him, but... I guess just we'll get quickly to the focusing on Yeah, yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the biggest issue I had, obviously, in England's reply, so they made 237. The biggest issue was just the Aussies not putting the foot on the neck. England ate for 167 at one stage, only had broad and back spasms Ollie Robinson left. Ben Stokes was playing well, but he certainly hadn't taken off at that stage. But it just, it did. It seemed like there was no plan. It was either short ball or nothing, really. And... We saw Mark Wood bounce our tail out and kind of expected that it would work for us. And okay, yes, there were chances put down, but you know when you give up 70 runs for the last two wickets, that really puts England maybe 50 runs above where they should have been. And I don't know about you, but that was where I kind of felt like we were in a bit of trouble.
1: Well, there are a few key points. So I think in the first innings after Mitch's knock, and I remember we were chatting on one of our group chats about it and we were kind of working out, you know, what would we like minimum? And I think 350 is probably what we're eyeing off. And I actually remember saying to the group, oh, we'd like another 80 odd here if we can. And then the wickets fell and it's like, geez, we'll be lucky to get another eight, let alone 80. So after Mitch, there was... Our tail didn't wag at all. And then on the other side, you're right. The English tail did wag a bit. And they really, to only have a deficit under 30, I think, wasn't it? So they did very well. And, and we did miss a trick there big time. And then the next key thing for me was the wickets of Manus Labashain and Steve Smith. I don't think they paid Maun Ali enough respect. I don't think they showed enough patience. And, and, you know, a lot of people are talking about the Aussies' bowling tactics and, and look, the Aussies did make a lot of mistakes. Scotty Boland didn't look great at times. We dropped some catches in the field. Well, Scotty Boland himself dropped one as, as well as, you know, not bowling superbly. But to me, those two wickets were huge. And I think they've kind of been a little bit lost in the discussion because obviously Australia didn't bat last. But I think that's where we really did miss a trick there, only scoring 224. Because I don't think... Although the pitch was a bit, it had uneven bounce from the outset, it wasn't the worst pitch in the world, and there was still plenty of time left when the match was over. So, I don't know, I've seen a hell of a lot worse fourth and fifth day pitches. So, I don't think it was necessarily the pitch. I think, as you say, it was often the tactics.
0: Well, again, I mean, if you look at it, Travis Head showed in that innings that you can bat on it the same way that Marsh showed in the first innings. I mean, Head played not subdued for him, but 77 off 112 for him is quite a a slow strike rate, I guess. Yeah, disciplined innings, yeah. Yeah, he showed that it could be done. And I know what you're saying about Ali, you know, them not showing him enough respect. I think what happened in the previous test that he played where basically he was bowling pies half the time because he's finger was that stuffed and i think they they just kind of remembered that and they they thought all right every second ball is going to be a half tracker or yeah going to be a, a basically a full toss that you could just pump over the fence and yeah you're right they didn't show the right level of respect quite frankly i think there should be a fine system in there though for getting out to and ali I, I really think there should be
1: <laughs> well funnily enough travis head is the sort of bloke that i would have expected to be more likely to throw his wicket away to that bowling than Smitty and Marnus, who are very disciplined and really protect their wicket, I've been amazed at some of the brain explosions the two of those have had throughout the series so far. A little bit,
0: yeah, it's been obviously quite a disappointing series for them both. I mean, if you look at the numbers, Smiths averaging thirty-one, Marnus is averaging twenty-four. You know, Zach Crawley, who has previously struggled mightily against us, has a better average than both of them. Mark Wood has a better average, so and as does Chris Wokes, funnily enough. So, yeah, it's certainly nowhere near what we're expecting from two of the best batters in the world and guys who have previously played the English conditions really, really well.
1: Yep. Couldn't agree more.
0: So, obviously, when you bat as poorly as Australia did in the second innings, you leave England with a score that they feel they can knock off very, very quickly. Time wasn't an issue, obviously, because of the fact that they bat so quickly. I think they only batted, what, 52 overs in the first innings. So, plenty of time. Even though there was a bit of rain, it still, everything was sweet. So, Nath, what did you make of the English batting performance in chasing down that target of 251?
1: Oh, look, you've got to obviously give them props for winning. And look, seven wickets down, it was certainly in the balance, wasn't it? They had a good start with Crawley and Duckett, but then Ali and Root didn't go on to score a hell of a lot. Harry Brook had a very nice innings. How's this for a stat? Usman Khawaja has faced 908 balls in this series alone, which is not much less than what Harry Brook has faced in his entire career so far. Wow. <laughs> one of the quickest, if not the quickest, to a thousand test runs, if I'm not mistaken.
0: I think he was, uh, yeah, either first or second, one of the two. I think he might have been first.
1: I've seen a few different lists, so I don't know which ones to believe, to be honest. But anyway, at either either way, he's got there very quick.
0: It was, it was a real flirty sort of effort from England, wasn't it? I mean, every time it felt like it was kind of getting away, they would just, yeah, just lift the skirt up a little bit, drop a wicket, and kind of give us a little bit of hope that potentially something could happen. When Stokes and Besto went fairly quickly, I think it was a, about a 10-run partnership between the two, you, you sort of start thinking, okay, 6 for one seventy-one, one wicket away basically from getting really into the tail because we know that Wokes can certainly wield the bat. He has a number of first-class tons. So, you know, he's a bloody good batter.
1: Wokes has played very well against the Aussies on a number of occasions, more in short-form cricket than long-form cricket. But, yeah, I oh, look, I was a bit worried when he came to the crease When you get Ben Stokes out for 13, you're feeling pretty confident, but uh, I still thought England would get home with the likes of Wokes, and and sure enough, they did. We only got the seven wickets in the end.
0: I mean, it did, but then at the same time, you know, when Brooke got out, still, what, 21 runs shy, you sort of think to yourself, we know how Mark Wood's going to come out and play. He swung the bat both innings very, very well, and you sort of think, right, if we can get through him, get into Robinson and Broad, you know, Robinson's back was playing up. You just never know. So, they oh, just- oh, yeah, there yeah, was, was hope.
1: There was plenty of hope. It was, I mean, it was nail biting stuff as the whole series has been. It's just been fantastic.
0: Yeah. So, very, very, as I say, very flirty innings from England. Just that little bit of hope here and there. But, yeah, exactly. Well played to England and absolutely deserved to win.
1: Now, look, we've talked about Scotty Boland, who didn't have... Well, he probably actually had his worst test of his fairly short career, I think. It's probably not too unfair to say. But the other thing that struck me was the lack of confidence that Cummins had in Todd Murphy. He got one over before lunch. It wasn't even at the right end. So he wasn't even bowling into the end with the good footmarks. It it was just tokenistic. And then... And look, I, I think a lot of it was to do with the fact that Ben Stokes was in, and he didn't want to expose him to Ben Stokes. But you've got to, you've got to back your spinner. If you have a frontline spinner in the team and you've still got a deficit of about 80 odd runs to play with, you've got to get him, you've got to at least throw the ball to him and see what happens. And I also thought that Mitch Marsh was bowling quite well too. And I thought that maybe he should have got a couple of the overs that Scotty Boland got. I know that Stark was bowling Thunderbolts. He had to have a rest, so I understand that. But then Stark didn't come on after the drinks break, which would have given him extra rest in addition to the time he had off when he didn't have a spell. So, yeah, there was some some interesting bowling decisions down the line from Camo on that last day.
0: Yeah, look, I agree with almost everything there. I'm not sure I agree with the Murphy stuff. I don't think he was... I don't think you could bowl him, quite frankly. Like, under that circumstance, I know... Well, not, even,
1: not even with 80 or 90 runs on the board. Now, if you had a quick over where he scores, where they get 20 or something, obviously you pull him off straight away. But you've got it, surely...
0: Yeah, but then the damage is done. You know, I, I don't know. I just didn't feel like you could play him. It just didn't look like the sort of wicket that was going to do anything for him. Well, uh, eh, Moeen got some bounce though.
1: I, I don't know. Yeah,
0: yeah. Look, I, I just I don't know. I I agree with everything else. I agree that Mitch Marsh should have bowled. I think Boland should have been pulled out of the attack a lot earlier. He wasn't really achieving anything, and unfortunately that really only leaves Cummins, Stark, and Marsh. So, yeah, they were kind of at a hiding to nothing. But, I mean, Stark, he was bowling really well. I, I agree entirely. And I think I said at the time when I, when I was watching it, like, what the fuck? Why are they not putting Stark back in? He's got to basically bowl out.
1: And I think sometimes we play into their hands. Like, I know you you stem the runs with the short stuff, but there wasn't enough variation. you got to have a few in-swinging Yorkers, or a few more at least.
0: Yeah, and against certain players as well. I mean, bowling short to Wood... We saw what happened. The first innings, what did he make? Like 24 off eight. You yeah, know? you're playing so, into
1: his hands. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He's
0: he's a big unit with a massive lever on him. So obviously in, there's no boundary in England that's even close to long enough. And he even did the same, 16 off eight in the second. So yeah, he's a guy that can do a lot of damage very, very quickly. And you're right, it was the wrong tactic. Have that ridiculous in swing Yorker that Stark bowls. That's what you've got to bowl to him. Now, now, just quickly before we go into, I guess, our thoughts on selection for the fourth test, did just want to quickly mention some more hypocrisy from the English. don't know if you saw that one that Ben Stokes was, uh, I guess, attempting to save on the boundary. Ball was flying towards the rope. He's managed to get to it, but in (laughs) basically picking the ball up, his entire forearm was resting against the rope as he's gone to basically start throwing it back. Joel Wilson, the third umpire as well, so we can't even blame that on being a dodgy third umpire as a bloody Aussie. But, he yeah, but jo- jo- Joel Wilson of... is a
1: shitty umpire, though. He's the one that blew that LBW decision in the last t- ashes in, in-, in England.
0: That's true. Probably is <laughs> a little bit too much on the, the side of caution. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just thought a little bit, you know, is that the way you want to win the game, is it, Benny?
1: Yep. No, what's good for the goose has to be good for the gander.
0: Indeed. Anyway. That's that's not sour grapes. As I said before, England deserved to win that. I think they played much better than Australia did. Well, not much better, but they played consistently they, they a better. Bit better. Yeah,
1: yeah, they were more disciplined. They played better. They perhaps were a bit more tactically better. Now, look, we've always had the worst of the conditions, but that's test cricket. That's just how it goes. So, that's it. yeah. I think the 2-1 scoreline probably accurately reflects where the series stands at the moment.
0: Absolutely. I mean shit, it could be three nothing to both teams.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it could. Or two one the other way or or just about any permutation you can think of, apart from draws. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So Nath, what's your thought on the selection side of things? Well, obviously start with Australia being our team. What do you make of the fourth test?
1: Oh God, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because Michael Nisa just had the knock of his life <laughs> in county.
0: Did you see that? I'd seen something about it. I didn't actually read the particulars though. So he came in at 5 for
1: 73 and scored 176 not out from 202 deliveries with 25 fours and two sixes Andy. to bring his Glamorgan side to 9 for 403. So wow. yes. So that makes things even more interesting. I know there's a lot of talk about Warner being cut. Part of me thinks we should persist with him. Part of that reason is who would who would open instead? I've heard talk of Mitch Marsh opening. I think it's going to be tough to drop Mitch Marsh after the the game he had. I don't know if he should be opening, though. Travis Head's Mm -hmm. another one they've talked about opening. Uh, That feels better than Marsh. But the other thing about Warner that everyone forgets about, he's a bloody good fielder, and he fields at first slip. And, okay, he's only averaging 19, this Ashes, so far. But... uh, I don't know. I'm really torn on Warner. I really am because I know that he's Broad's bunny. Yeah, he he didn't have a good test this test, but the other two were okay. Uh, I don't know. Is is he done?
0: Yeah, I, I guess the big question is yeah, who would come in? Marcus Harris is another one. I guess you could consider. He's had a pretty decent run over there. Sixteen hundred and fifty-seven runs in county cricket at forty-seven and a half seven centuries. I mean, you'd take frigging 27 the way that Warner's been batting, let alone 47, but... Well, here's the thing, Shuri.
1: In the second test, 66 off 88 in the first innings, 25 off 76 in the second. Okay, it's not a lot of runs, but he saw off the new ball. So, yes, he did have a really shitty third test, but
0: it could be worse. It could be worse. It could be. And look, Harris, Warner... It's, it's kind of a toss-up. I mean, broad coming around the wicket, he can bowl exactly the same line to Harris, who's also a lefty. And we saw issues last Ashes that he played where he was nicking off to that ball. He kind of gets gets a little bit caught in the crease sometimes. And, yeah, kind of the same issue that Warner has.
1: I don't have a lot of faith in either Harris or Renshaw. So uh, part of me thinks that maybe the only change we make is Hazelwood coming in for Boland. But uh, there will be more changes than that. And sorry, that average of David Warner is actually 19 in his last six tests, not this series, but I may as well finish. So in the first test, he was nine off 27 and 36 off 57. So he is helping to see off the new ball, but my suspicion is that you've got him out of the team.
0: It's between him and Harris for me. I don't see any value in bringing a Marsh, a Green, Head, any of those guys out of the middle order and putting them up. So, yeah, look, in terms of the changes that I've got, I definitely have Bolwin coming out. Two wickets at 115.5, strike rate of 141, economy rate nearly five. It's just not good enough. He's not causing any sort of grief for any of the batters, so I think he has to make way. And I hate to say it, but I think Todd Murphy probably comes out as well. I honestly can see Ted, Smith, Labashane all rolling the arm over and kind of doing the spinner's job. I think if Green is fit, he comes in, you've got an extra batter there. So I would probably go Harris or Warner, Kawaja, Labashane, Smith, Head, Marsh, Green, Carey, Stark, Cummins and Hazelwood. Yeah, the
1: Murphy one's really interesting, isn't it? So Manchester traditionally is a bit of a spinning wicket. But if Cummins doesn't have the faith in him, then he probably shouldn't be played. And then you can fit both Green and Marsh in together. I'd probably stick with Marsh on form. But if you're not going to have a specialist spinner, then, as I say, you could you could play the two of them. I don't mind either way. I, I like the idea of a frontline spinner playing, but only play him if you're actually going to bloody bowl him.
0: Well, the thing is, though, at this stage of his career, what's the difference between him and Travis Head?
1: Oh, he, he went pretty well in India. <laughs>
0: he did go pretty well in India. In India, yes.
1: Well, true. It's a different place, but he is a frontline spinner. So Yeah,
0: yeah. look, as I say, I just think given the issues that we've had, I mean, the fact that he basically did nothing in that test anyway, why not have an extra batter if you're just going to not bowl him?
1: Yeah, well, I agree. Only play him if you're going to bowl him and if you're going to actually have some faith in him and trust that he can pick up wickets and slow down the run rate.
0: As far as England goes, I actually wouldn't be surprised if maybe Bairstow for folks is probably the only one I can really see happening. I think everyone else kind of has to keep their spot. They'll go with Moeen as their spinner. I think Wood, Wokes, and Broad are fine. Robinson has said that he's fine. So if he's fine, I guess they'll probably pick him as well. He didn't so, even get yeah, a bowl think... in the second innings. Didn't get a bowl. No, well, that was that was because of the back spasms.
1: Yeah, and obviously you talked about Mark Wood and I agree with you. I suspect that Mark Wood would have been playing had he been 100% fit from match one as well. So there are injuries on both sides and they are impacting things.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So in the NBA, as I said, we'll have our NBA draft episodes coming out very soon indeed. We'll talk about the whole draft holistically and then we'll obviously get stuck in with our experts about the NBL and the next stars and the international players. A lot of French players. Now, there's been some new trades and a few other bits and pieces we should probably cover, Shuri.
0: Yeah, there's a couple involving your Spurs, a couple of head scratches for me, and obviously, Paddy Mills. We've got to talk about him quickly. Traded for, what was it, 56 times in 10 days? (laughs) It was only three in 10 days, but it probably felt like
1: 56.
0: It did. So, traded from OKC to Atlanta for Ty Ty Washington, Usman Garuba, Rudy Gay, and a second-round pick, which unfortunately for Atlanta Hawks fans, yes, Woody and Robbie, I'm looking at you. That means that John Collins has effectively been turned into Paddy Mills.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I still think Mills has something to offer and I think he could be a good backup. He's backed up to John Tay before. But uh, by the way, on Atlanta, I, I mentioned why I didn't understand why Boston didn't maybe go after him. Now, obviously they're not division rivals, but they are conference rivals. So it's possible that maybe the Celtics kicked the tires on that one and the Hawks didn't want to give him to them but uh yeah just kind of reflecting on on our last episode 157
0: it it just seems like such an odd trade i don't understand like fair enough if you're maybe clearing out cap or knowing that collins is going to ask for a a decent amount of money i get that but oh god it just it really seems right from the start they could have got more for him i just don't understand
1: it's a little surprising i agree
0: now, two trades involving your San Antonio Spurs, Nate. So three-team trade. Grant Williams traded from the Celtics to the Dallas Mavericks uh, with two second round picks via San Antonio. The Celtics will get two second round picks via Dallas. And the Spurs pick up Reggie Bullock and a 2030 swap with the Dallas Mavericks.
1: Yeah, love this trade for my Spurs. I think by 2030, those Mavs might not be very good. And we might be quite good. So we might be in a similar situation to Golden State where we're fairly close to the top of the pile and still get some some good draft picks potentially because we've got those Atlanta picks coming as well, the pick swaps. I don't think they're all protected either. They might not be. So yeah, no, love this trade for the Spurs. Continuing to do what your Thunder have been doing for a while now, accumulating assets and using the cap space to help absorb contracts. I think Bullock will be a good veteran presence and I wouldn't be surprised if we try and uh, spin him into some more picks around the deadline to a contender. And I guess the only other thing about this, and look, Grant Williams, he's a a bit of a nuisance, and I think he, he drove the Boston Celtics coaching staff mad at times, but he is a good player, and he's a good defender, and he does really beef up those defensive stocks in Dallas, which is what we've been worrying about. I think the Porzingis trade makes less sense now with Grant Williams gone.
0: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, look, you have to go after Porzingis. If the guy can stay on the court, and we know this is a big if based on the last however many years, if he stays on the court, he is not quite all NBA, but he's pretty close. So Well, he had a career see- year last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see why. And obviously putting him in a lineup where you've got Tatum and Brown, I really like that. But yeah, you're right. I think you kind of need to keep guys like that. I mean, Williams did just sign a four-year $53 million deal. So it could have been one of these ones where they thought, well, we don't really want to pay the luxury tax on that because they'd be paying big money for the, the big three, I guess. And when you consider they're only getting a couple of second rounders back, that really does kind of seem like a salary dump to me. I actually wanted to quickly home in on Reggie Bullock, or as Bullock, as he likes to be called. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I actually really like the idea of keeping him around, because if you consider the fact that Spurs were, what, 26th in the league in three-point shooting last year, a lot of young guys that need that veteran leadership. I actually really like him as a decent fit. You know, you've got Wemby down low, Guys are going to be doubling him like crazy, trying to get the ball out of his hands. And if he's looking over a double team, passing out to a guy who shoots a very, very handy clip, like he's a career 38% three-point shooter, pretty much around that sort of 36 to 41% the last three years. So yeah, I like the idea of him being a guy that could be getting a lot of really good looks. Oh,
1: look, I like it either way. I'd be uh, happy and fine with us keeping him, but I'd also be happy spinning him into another draft pick. So, yeah, either way, I'm I'm quite happy with that trade. I think the Spurs are continuing to do good things. Now, can I just... There's been a lot of talk about money and deals, and that Grant Williams deal sounds like an absolute bargain, actually. That seems like quite a good deal. By the way, the Lakers got Austin Reeves on a bargain. But I just wanted to talk about the salary cap quickly, because I know that we've been talking about numbers. The last time we talked about how we need to stop thinking about what's an expensive deal in today's day and age because things are exploding. So the cap this season is about $136 million. The luxury tax will be about 165, But in five years' time, the cap is expected to be $190 million. So in just five years, it's going to go up by nearly $60 million. So when we talk about these deals and we talk about what seems to be really high, some of these deals could age really well. And if players at least play up to expectation, they could turn into bargains in some ways. So I also looked at the eligible percentage of cap for the max. So players with zero to six years of service are eligible for a quarter of the cap or 25%, one-fourth as the Americans say. Players of seven to nine years of experience uh, of service with the team, that's a key detail as well, are eligible for 30% of the salary cap. And players with 10 plus years of service are eligible for 35% of the salary cap. And I guess on the flip side of that, that's maybe why Dame's market value is, is maybe a little bit lower because we know that that final year of his deal, he'll be in his late 30s and he'll be earning 60 plus million, I think it is. So I just wanted to bring that up because I know there's been a lot of talk about money, maybe without kind of thinking about the cap explosion that's happened.
0: Yeah, look, some of them are me thinking about the player that's getting the money, just as much as the dollar amount. But look, there are a lot of instances, as we always say, where teams have to pay somebody. I mean, the Fred Van Vleet deal, for example, is he a three-year, $130 million player with the Toronto Raptors even, let alone a playoff team? I would say maybe not, but certainly with a, a Houston Rockets team where most of the team are still in nappies, it's someone you've got to pay.
1: I like that one better than the Dylan Brooks deal. I tell you what, jeez, they're paying yeah. him a lot.
0: Yeah, they are. That's... For a guy, for a guy that
1: was basically excommunicated from his old team. Sure. I don't know if that's a wagon you want to hitch to.
0: Yeah. I don't think it was worth quite. I mean, put it this way. I guess if you consider some of the other guys, you know, would you say he's a better player than Isaiah Stewart?
1: Oh, of course. Yes, I would. But, it's it's not it's not just in isolation of of his skill and and what he brings to the table cuz with the chemistry stuff i think he brings some he pulls some stuff off the table too so i think it's more than just skill
0: oh yeah look i mean i think he'll kind of and the reason i brought that up he just signed a 4 year 64 million dollar deal so a little bit less than what brooks is making but look i think brooks is kind of going to have a uh, not so much a longer leash where he is cuz the expectations in houston are obviously a lot lower but i don't know I think, yeah, I think he was going to get paid somewhere. I think that's maybe the best case scenario for him is go to a team where if he does something stupid, no one's even going to notice because Houston won't be on the TV half the time.
1: Yeah, but on the flip side of that, if I'm trying to build a team and build a good winning culture, why the hell would I bring in bad culture, guys? All right, that's a head scratcher for me. I mean, I don't know. He's the sort of bloke that I wouldn't want on my team anyway, so maybe I'm just biased. But again, well, I'm not Kevin, denying the got skill.
0: They got Kevin Porter. He's the same sort of guy.
1: Yeah, that, that Houston team's interesting. And, and I agree. They I do think they overpaid for Van Vliet. I, yeah, that's, it's a really interesting scenario, that one.
0: Yeah. But again, as I said, they've got to pay somebody. And Freddie at least has championship pedigree. So you just never know. It's true. Now, another trade involving your Spurs. This one's a really interesting one. And one that I don't think got quite enough press. So the Cleveland Cavaliers pick up Max Struess. Miami get a future second-round pick. And the Spurs pick up Seti Osman. Uh, Lamar Stevens and a future second round pick.
1: Yeah, so you're higher on Ceddie Osman than me. I, I I'm not particularly inspired. I never,
0: but... I never said I never said that. Well, you're no, I, well, mean, I mean, I mean the Cavs picking up Max Strus. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting one, isn't it? I don't know what his his money
1: was. Uh, is that a salary dump on Miami's part? It must be because they're trying to get Dame. That's what that's all about. That's all about the Dame deal.
0: Yeah, well, it was a four-year, $63 million sign and trade. So they obviously didn't want to pay him quite that much money, and that makes sense if Lillard is coming over. If he's not, however, it uh, makes, makes a little bit less sense. But again, yeah, well, they, they were a playing team, play. weren't they? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They probably looked at it and went, well, we're already paying Duncan Robinson way too much. Do we want to pay another guy who basically shoots the ball and doesn't do a whole heap else particularly well?
1: Yeah. I mean, he's, no, I, I better. Cannot... he's a
0: better player. But-
1: I can understand. I agree. I can understand why they didn't want that duplication. I think they probably had to move one of those two guys. So yeah, I think you're right there.
0: Look, I mean, Osman's not bad, and you'll get something out of those two guys. But yeah, certainly, I think the Max Thrush side of things, he's obviously a very big upgrade on Osman. So I think you'll you'll probably find that that maybe pushes the Cavs a little bit further up. I mean, okay, he's not a a top tier guy, but he did some really really good things for that Heat team in that playoff run. I like adding him to the Cavaliers team from last season. They they look like they could be really good. And then just to round out the last couple, these are real head scratches for me. So the Indiana Pacers trading Chris Duarte to the Sacramento Kings for a twenty twenty eight and a twenty thirty second round pick, and then Obi Toppin going to the Indiana Pacers for two future second round picks. uh it's a weird one.
1: It is, isn't it? So it's got to be salary dumps because obviously second rounders don't count anything towards your cap until you sign them. So I think that's the logic there. But geez, that feels like a steal for Toppen, doesn't it? It feels like an absolute steal. I, I liked him. I don't know why the Knicks would have given up on him. I really don't.
0: He's only making about six and a half or just just under seven million next year, which is absolute pittance as NBA players go did sign a, a qualifying offer for about $9 million with the Pacers for next season, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I really like Obi Toppen. and I like energy guys.
1: Me too. Yeah. He's, yep.
0: he's, he's developed a decent outside shot. I, I just, I don't see why they gave up on him. And Julius Randall and, can yeah. be,
1: he can, he can disappear or he can pout or, he, you know, Julius Randall can be a bit funny sometimes. So Toppen was a yeah. good backup there. I oh, know. I really liked the move for Indiana. I wonder, on the Duarte side of things, I guess it was maybe to clear enough salary in order to pay Toppen? Obviously, they've just paid Halliburton and Max, so I guess that's probably a bit of accounting.
0: Even then, I mean, he, this is a guy who, yeah, basically $4 million this year, $6 million next year, and about $8 million the following year. He's not a guy who's particularly expensive. as well it's as a rookie. It's, it's still his rookie deal, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And he plays defense, and he's a bit older, so he's he's not your typical rookie contract. So yeah, no, I agree. Bit bit head scratching that one.
0: I think both of those trades look really good for the team that picked up the player. I like him in Sacramento, and I like top. I mean, I like top in anywhere. Quite frankly, I, yeah, I, I agree. Really I like do too. Kid.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan too. But,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, geez, I know you. You make a good point though about the second round is not counting towards the cap. So I guess. Maybe that's the the logic there, but oh, just yeah, feel bad for the guys.
1: That's my only explanation. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the Knicks, they got Dante Divincenzo, so they've reunited uh, Hart, Brunson, and Divincenzo from that Villanova championship team.
0: Yeah, I saw that. That's a, a pretty decent size loss, actually, for the Golden State Warriors bench.
1: He's a really good energy guy and he's handy. I mean, it was really interesting in the playoffs; he'd either get no time at all or. He was all over the place with his court time. I, I suspect he'll get way more court time with the Knicks, and that's probably why he went there.
0: Yeah, I mean, you'd have to assume he would, but then again, the Knicks have got a lot of these sort of swing men or, or two guard sort of they're guys. They're guard as heavy, well, aren't so, they? Yeah,
1: they, which, they which makes the top end thing even more interesting the fact that they're guard. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, it, it is. It, the Knicks are an interesting one.
0: Yeah, and I mean, look, I guess the Warriors, yeah, they're, they're probably looking at it going, well, we're at the stage now with guys like Moses Moody and Gary Payton II. Well, I mean, Payton plays pretty decent minutes, but Moody hasn't played big minutes his first couple of seasons. So I guess they may be looking at that saying, now is the time where you'll get some minutes, we'll see how you go, and if it doesn't work out, we'll move you on. And they've got a couple of guys. I mean, Kaminga's another one where they've they've kind of got to find time for him this season or move on from him. Um, yeah, Patrick I agree Another guy. I they've agree. got a few guys like that.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. You're right.
0: Man, just just quickly, man, how much luxury tax are the Warriors going to pay this season? Listen to these. Steph Curry, forty eight million. Uh, you've got Draymond Green, twenty nearly twenty six million. You've got Chris Paul, twenty eight million, Clay Thompson, forty million, and Wiggins on thirty three. That is a lot of money.
1: The Suns as well. There'll be a few teams paying a pretty decent uh, <laughs> luxury tax bill.
0: That's a, that is a lot. I mean, that, that alone, those five players are like $180 million nearly.
1: Yeah, well, like I said, the luxury tax number was 165. So, yeah, no, they will be. They'll be paying. So I see your Thunder picked up Victor Oladipo again, Stewie. I just want to clarify from last week, and people would have listened. I, I used the old... And the... In my editing now. So I said, I wondered if, if Victor Oladipo won Rookie of the Year. He actually finished second in the 2013 Rookie of the Year contest to Michael Carter-Williams.
0: He did, yeah. That was that was a real random one. That one.
1: It was. Is Card Williams even still in the league?
0: <laughs> no. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Oh no, he's with the Magic. There you go. <laughs> he shows how uh, how easy it is to not even notice the guy. Yeah, he played four games for the Magic last season.
1: Yeah, look, I'll be honest. I didn't watch a lot of Orlando Magic last year. I'll probably be watching more this season though.
0: Do you know what, though? Like, to be fair to him, he actually did have a really good rookie season. Nearly 17, six rebounds, two steals a game, six assists.
1: He nearly had a triple-double in his debut, I remember.
0: He had a quadruple. It wasn't a quadruple. Quad, double. was
1: it? I, yeah, I remember us being, like, blown away by his debut for Philly back in the day.
0: Yeah, he had 22, 12, 7, and 9, I think it was. Yeah, right. There you so, go. Yeah. Not far away.
1: Yeah, yeah. There you go. Incredible. So we spoke last week about how much we love the footy and how we're both watching every single game. (laughs) We'll just smash through it today. But how's this? So I was keeping an eye on the Brisbane-Melbourne game that's been, the second half's been going on while we've been recording. So Brisbane was up. what the fuck? Brisbane was up comfortably. I know, I know. I will be watching the fourth quarter of this game tonight. Maybe, I might even watch the whole game actually. Brisbane was up comfortably, a good four, five goals. And Melbourne have snatched it, 105 to 104. Melksham with a goal with 30 seconds left. So there you go. Crazy stuff. Oh,
0: damn. Yeah. I just went on to see how much Brisbane won by in the end. Yeah. Holy shit. I know, right? A
1: couple of crazy stats, I guess. Uh, Scott Penderbury became the all-time possessions record holder in the AFL. Do you know who he passed?
0: Uh, Robert Harvey, was it not?
1: That is correct. Zach Toohey broken the record for most VFL or AFL games played by an Irishman. When Geelong beat North by 62 the other day, he surpassed, of course, the great Jim Stein. Jimmy Steins? Yeah, yep. 264. So I had, to be, had,
0: had to be Steinsie. It how was, far yeah. Ty, how far back is Ty Canelli from that?
1: Oh, good question. I'll look that up while I say the only thing, of course, is that Steinsie won that 1991 Brownlow medal. So that is one thing that he will always have over Tui because you can't think that Tui will be winning one at this late stage of his career.
0: I'm just going to look up Ty so, Canelli.
1: Let's have a look. Certainly more than Satantaro Halpin. Put it that way. One hundred and ninety-seven yeah. games. Oh, three off like two hundred. Yeah, one hundred ninety-seven. Tig.
0: Okay.
1: So there you go. Yeah,
0: it's a good. I mean, look, those one hundred ninety-seven games were incredibly high quality. He's one of the best Irishmen to do it.
1: Oh yes, I loved. I love watching him play. Very good player. Key turnover in that 2006 Grand Final, of course. But hey, no one is perfect. Now the other thing, the Goko Suns have fired Stewie Jew. Since coming into the AFL, do you know their best finish on the ladder? 11th? 12th. So they've been in the league since 2011. So the Dockers cop shit for not winning a premiership. But the Gold Coast Suns, since 2011, haven't finished higher than 12th. And they had a Brownlow medal in Gaz Ablett in 2013. And he played some very, very good years there too. So, yeah, not fun at the Gold Coast.
0: Yeah, it's one of these things we often talk about. It's the place where sporting teams go to die. And it's one of these examples yet again.
1: I think it probably had to be done. And, of course, the tip is that there'll be a very big name signing there pretty soon in Dimmer. But, uh, yeah, we'll see how that unfolds. Only a couple of other things for me. Did you see the fake post about Grian Myers that supposedly Jared Whateley... (laughs) You saw that? But so
0: him, him him, being the Lionel Messi of the AFL.
1: Yeah, so the fake quote was, Grian Myers is to the AFL what Leo, what Leo Messi is to soccer. Messi may kick more goals, but Myers scans the field just as well, maybe even better than Messi does. Like, so clearly this is bullshit. Like, I, I don't know why anyone would think this would have been real. Clearly there's no way that the great journalist that is Jared Whateley, even as a Geelong fan, would make this statement. Do you know...
0: It's so interesting you bring that up. So my daughter's started playing little Oz kick footy, and she's in about her second month doing it, still trying to figure out how to handball and all of that sort of stuff. When she kicks, she actually kicks a little bit like Ryan Myers. Like she holds it off to the side and kind of sweeps the leg across the way that Myers does.
1: Yeah. Well, just don't get her hair in treadlocks.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. There's, there's times when I feel like they could form any day. She's she's not that dirty, but yeah, sometimes I feel like she could wash it a little bit more often. <laughs>
1: Uh, I think she's still at an age where where you can't have too high expectations of her hair washing, Stewie. True.
0: True. Anyway,
1: the the only other stuff I had. So I've got a swampy stat, a couple of swampy stats here. Jack Gunston joined Scotty Cummings as the only VFL AFL player to kick five plus goals in a game for teams based in three different states. And what makes this really interesting is that it was not long after Jack Gunston and Daniel Rich stood themselves down from selection. It's amazing what a game against the Eagles will do.
0: Yeah. So hang on, who's the third one? So Brisbane, Hawthorne, who was the third team?
1: Adelaide. Oh, I didn't,
0: didn't even remember that he played for Adelaide. There you go. Well,
1: it's funny you say that because I forgot that Scotty Cummins played for Essendon.
0: Port. Oh, for Essendon. Okay. Yeah,
1: I knew Port because he played quite well. He, in fact, I think he might have even had 100 in a season for Port. Or was it 100 in a season for the Eagles? Maybe oh, both.
0: For West Coast, yeah. West
1: Coast, was it? Yeah, okay. Now, I guess, can I talk about a glimmer of light for the Eagles? And I know there hasn't been much.
0: Is the glimmer of light that there's only a handful of games left in the season?
1: (laughs) Well, I guess that's one of them. But how's this? Oscar Allen joined a whole bunch of blokes, so I won't read the full list, but a whole bunch of blokes, I'll read a couple of names after this, to have kicked a goal in every game of a 14-plus game losing streak. Wow. It's impressive because there's been a lot of games where they haven't kicked many goals. (laughs) Couple of other names on that list: Mark Wacko, Jacko, Simon Mitten, Connell, Richo, and Jeremy Cameron. More recently,
0: Uh yeah, the old GWS days for him. Yeah, they were pretty bleak at the start.
1: In those early days, yeah,
0: yeah, geez, that was yeah. Look, he he has been a moderate shining light, and there have been some shining light. A couple of the young guys, yeah, you know, Jimby looks really good, Marriage looks all right, but ugh, it's just too many passengers every single week, and it is harder and harder to watch.
1: Yeah, and as a Swans fan, oh, gee, they're teasing as well. Obviously, the two-point win over the Dogs overnight, it's at that point where I know we're not going to make finals, and so the wins are just, ah oh, it's a tease. It really is a tease. What's the bet we finish ninth? Ugh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Actually, for the record, Nathan, I've just looked it up. Uh, Cummings never actually kicked 100 goals. He kicked 95 goals in 1999 to win the Coleman, but okay, never kicked... Never kicked more than that.
1: There you go. There you go. All right, should sure, you know what that music means. Final thoughts time.
0: Yeah, final thoughts. Jeez, I mean, not quite as much going on right now, but I will be heading off in a second to go and watch uh, Yannick Sinner probably lose to Djokovic. And uh, looking forward to the final tomorrow night, actually, see if Ons Jabur can actually go ahead and win her first Grand Slam. A lot of stuff going on in the NBA in the background. We're still waiting for the big trades with Lillard and Harden, We'll see what happens, mate, and then obviously bring on the cricket.
1: Apparently Harden is pushing very hard to go to the Clippers, so that's something to look at. I believe you've got some soccer coming up too, so we'll talk about that soon. Until next time, I'm Nate And I'm Stu. We are the Spotplugs.